Hello and welcome back to Absurdity. Now, we are still on break. Tony and I are taking a much-needed holiday together. Um, and by yep. together, I mean we're just in the same city. That's about it. Um, but At the same time. At the same time. Yeah. Generally spending more time together than we have in you know months past. True. So technically, it is holiday together. It is a holiday together. Um, no, we're still taking a break. However... In the, in the British sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with everything that's happened in the last couple of weeks, uh, I felt it necessary and tony hopped on board with me when i told him i was going to do this with or without him um you know we both so we both felt it necessary to um take a break from the break and uh basically publish an episode about this a, a, a quick reprieve yes it i mean my my reasoning here is essentially to not cover this especially when it is a huge national conversation right now to not cover this right now would be basically to betray the entire platform I've tried to build with this podcast, right? Like this is the exact kind of thing that I started this podcast to address and talk about. Yeah. And I mean, not like that I was looking forward to it or anything, but more just like these are important things in conversations that need to happen. Yeah. And so, yeah, to not talk about it or to talk about it when it's months old, which technically it already is, um, you know, that just seems to be irresponsible. Well, it is months old, but the video didn't drop until May 5. And we're, you know, just maybe a week, a couple of weeks after that. And so that, that, you know, the, the, the other reasoning that I really agreed with, and I agree with that as well, um, is that by the, if we kind of waited for our um, reprieve to end or holiday to, to wrap up, it, it's a little bit too far. Um, yeah. The case know. will still be going on, but. At that it's, point, people you, will you be, might, you know, you might forget the name or, you know, oh, what was that again? That, I've used it as confrontation fatigue, but basically people will be fatigued of talking about it by that point. Like, right. Yeah. They'll have consumed anything yeah. they're going to consume about it, which meaning means that this would fall on essentially deaf ears. Yeah. And that's the problem. Yeah. So what I want to do is I'm going to give kind of a brief overview of the timeline. We have a timeline up until about May 8th. So, um, not that we're actually recording this after May 8th, but this is, as, uh, this is essentially as the goal here is just to give an overview. I'm right, not going to, yeah. I have no interest in really going heavy, heavy into details on different parts of this. Mainly there's a couple things, but mainly you can find that very easily. Not really worried about that. This is just kind of an idea of just, just gives us an idea and a framework in, in for case, what we're yeah. talking about. I mean, in case you have no idea what's going yeah. on, so or you only have a nominal idea. Uh, we're talking about the shooting of Ahmad Arbery in uh, in Georgia, and on February 23 was when he was shot and killed. Um, he was the, the the current story, and really the story is that he was jogging in a neighborhood um, near his home, and there was uh, two men: one a former police officer and his son, Travis uh, George and Travis McMichael. Um, and uh, George McMichael recognized him as a burglary, burglary suspect from um, from a few nights prior, um, having stolen a, I think, a, a pistol from his car or his truck. Um, no confirmation that that was Arbery. He just saw Arbery running and said, that's the guy who is, you know, 
and he's running. And so he went and got his, got his son. They grabbed their guns. They hopped in the truck with a neighbor and, or with a couple trucks with the neighbor and, and they quite literally like chased him down. They asked him to stop. He said, no, <laughs> essentially he kept going. And so then, uh, the truck pulled ahead of him and, uh, Travis got out of the truck with his shotgun. Uh, Arbery runs around the truck and attempts to uh, get the drop on Travis in that moment. And in the ensuing tackle or in the ensuing struggle for the shotgun, um, Arbery shot a total of, I think, three times. The first one through his hand, the other two absolutely are actually fatal. And he dies face down in the street. And there is a video of this. So February 23 is when that happened. Um, February 24, uh, the DA George Barnell says that there uh, is no grounds for an arrest. February 27, uh, the DA for the Brunswick, Georgia Judicial Court, uh, Jackie Johnson, recuses herself from the case, citing the fact that Gregory McMichael, sorry, not George, Gregory McMichael, is a former investigator with her office. And then in early April, Barnhill himself recuses. Uh, and then on April 13, Tom Durden is appointed. On April 29, Glynn County requests that the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, or the GBI, uh, to he asked them to investigate and then on may 5 the video surfaces ironically released by the neighbor that they recruited with them thinking that this would exonerate all of them right yeah um video releases to a news network that news network put uh, makes it public um and once that was in the public spotlight i mean this just took off i mean within 36 hours i think yeah Within 36 hours of the video essentially going live, or at least with the with the um, with the GBI looking into the release of the video itself, um, the McMichaels were arrested. So May five, the video services um, and uh, Tom Durden recommends the case be presented before a grand jury jury for criminal charges. May six, the investigation officially launches. May seven, the McMichaels are arrested, and May eight, bond was denied to the McMichaels. Um, in in court and they what's it's weird seeing them appear like over video um it's just all weird but um so to give a couple more facts here um travis mcmichael's father told the responding officer uh, jay brandeberry that arbery caught their attention because he resembled a man accused of a rash of residential break-ins he said they decided to grab their guns and chase him here's the funny thing this is, these are some of the details we're going to get into. The Brunswick News reported that only one burglary was reported in the area from the start of 2020 to the day Arbery died. The sole item stolen was a gun from Travis McMichael's unlocked pickup truck. Um, <laughs> hilarious to me. Like, you're going to look at a man who doesn't have the same who look who stands out to you because he's running in a neighborhood that's predominantly white and you're going to say that man you're going to try and blame him as a you know accuse him of a rash of of break-ins and what's been amazing is ever since this shooting it's not amazing we've watched this play out over and over and over again right yeah is that basically now everyone's trying to dig into arbory's past try and his you know past actions that day trying to essentially find a reason that justifies the McMichael's shooting after the fact. And they're trying to do so like any evidence that you can supply. Like, for example, there's a video of him going into a construction, uh, a, a home under construction. And the homeowners have stated that there was nothing missing. 
And if there had been, they wouldn't have wanted this to be the outcome. Um, they, um, but, you know, they say, well, that was trespassing. You know, he was clearly, you know, not where he was supposed to be, whatever. Don't really care. Not at all justifies what happened to him. And I saw a tweet literally earlier today where someone said, yo, I don't care if he walked away with the house literally on his back. He should still be alive. <laughs> and that's kind of the whole point is like, this was completely unnecessary. Well, and I think the, the telling point here is that the McMichaels didn't know any of that. Um, so all of this past action, they could not have known that at the time. Exactly. And there still isn't evidence that he was the guy who took the gun or not. Yeah. Um, so the, you know, just mathematically, the chances mm-hmm. that he was the guy who actually took the gun are very slim. Now, even if he was the guy, um, that's why you have police officer. Yeah. You can tail him. Sure. But that's why we have police officers for you to, mm-hmm. co- to come out and, and do that simply because you saw a guy. Um, that, I mean, that's, yeah, it, it's, it's unprovoked is the point is like, you can't, you can't have known. And, and here's the thing for me, at least when I first, you know, heard about the fact that, Oh wait, there was only one robbery and it was their gun. Um, in my mind, the only thing that comes is, Oh, somebody running through our neighborhood. Hey, somebody stole my gun. That's probably the guy that took it. Now I can understand if that is if if you did really suspect him of stealing that gun, I can understand why you might be tempted to think he might be armed. Like I, given the item that was stolen, right? Like to some level, and I'm not even trying to write this off. I'm just saying, like, I can get why they would be interested in in carrying a gun in this case, especially given Georgia is also an open carry state. Um, the issue I have is like not the right move like here the mcmichael's first response aside from profiling him based on of his based on his skin color which by the way um dave chappelle has a great stand-up bit you can it's two minutes long it is legendary and it's called fit the description um and he just talks about how we just always fit the just like black people always fit the description we always just seem to fit the description and he's he's like i don't blame us i blame the sketch artist the whole the whole bit is amazing, but it kind of talks about this perfectly where like, you know, they their first response upon seeing someone suspected of a crime was to grab their guns and chase him down, not even call the police. In fact, the police report or at least the the there is no record that I know of at the time of us recording this that they called the police buff at any point in time before the shoot before the actual shooting and confrontation happened. Right. They called yeah. after the shooting had happened. Yeah. So it's not even like they were going to perform a citizen's arrest, which apparently they drove up next to him, yelled, stop, stop. He didn't. And then the, the final confrontation happened. Um, what were they going to, they were going to hold him down and then all the cops and wait, like all of that doesn't make like all of that seems like really poor logic to me just in general, especially from someone who's a former cop. Well, of course. And, and you know, it begs the question of, okay, if you're going to leave a firearm in an unlocked car, um, why, why are you going to knowing that this person could have that firearm confront them? Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, 
like no, a the chances that they would have that firearm are low b what's going to happen if that person saw a gun in someone's car and decided i'm just going to take this gun mm-hmm. in a wide neighborhood where nobody knows uh then what you know what 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 possible outcome did they think was going to happen yeah I, and that's like they were they I, look, went out prepared to shoot those guns period i I, tell you, I grew up in an area it it wasn't the worst area but it wasn't the best area in north hollywood california i have heard shots go off um i've heard dozens of police chases when i heard a helicopter growing up i knew oh they're looking for x right uh x being there's a bank robbery at the north hollywood bank the famous shooting that happened literally within walking like the Baskin Robbins where we went and got ice cream growing up was right next to the bank that got taken out. So my dad has a shell casing. I remember like we went to Baskin Robbins like the day after that happened and my dad went and found the shell casing like just on the street from that. So I, I know when you hear shots fired, your instinct is not, Oh, let me follow this person. Correct. That that's never your instinct, right? Yeah. And even if it is like to tail them, you don't confront them. Yeah. Well, and let me, I, I do want to clarify one thing here too. Well, yes, like they could have called the cops first. I don't, I don't want to imply that that wouldn't have also no, been based it, on a it, racial profile, you know, a racist profile. It's not of someone. good like, either. However, it, he maybe just maybe, maybe he'd still be alive. Yeah. That it would have lessened. Cause here's the thing. Whenever you have a situation like that, you can't, to me, this is the whole thing. It ended with a dead man. So any action you could have taken differently that didn't end with that outcome. And I will say this professional police officers maybe have a better handle on it. I don't know. Maybe. But the, the reality is you took that maybe out of the equation when you took it on yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and when it's a citizen, when it's just two random dudes in a pickup truck, I'm not black. But if two random dudes in a pickup truck look at me and say, stop, stop, I can tell you I'm not stopping. Like, I can tell you right now, if I'm out jogging and that happens to me, I'm I'm not. I don't actually care I, who's I asking me do, to stop. Yeah, I'm not stopping. I wouldn't even do what he did, and that is jog straight in the street. I'm going through someone's yard to get away from mm-hmm. this, and that's the thing that that you know. To me, I I can't see any outcome where it didn't end with him, yeah, being shot or hurt in some way. And so you have to say, all right, well, any decision that you made differently, that's going to be a better one at this point because you had the worst possible outcome. Yep. Now I will say uh, two things here. Number one. Uh, both, both of both things, incredibly despicable. Number one is all of the attempts to uh, change the history on this and basically uh, try and justify the McMichael's actions with information that they did not have, that they could not have had in the moment. Okay. That's already despicable enough. Number two um, is something, and it's a double standard I've, I've been watching take place uh, pretty commonly, but the most egregious spot I I saw it was uh, there is a, um, there was a YouTube video that I saw on Saturday and it took me probably 30 minutes to find because the video keeps getting taken down every time it gets put back up, which of course, you know, makes them all double, makes all the people that, that, that are supporters of it double down on like, there's a conspiracy against them, whatever. Um, you can imagine it's a heavily right wing 
organization uh, that put out this video. And honestly, like, I'm not going to link it only because it keeps getting taken down. There's no, I'd have to rechange that link every like hour. Um, but the video itself uh, is someone basically saying this is the truth around Arbery's, Arbery's case uh-huh. uh, and, and the shooting, what the media isn't telling you and all this stuff. And there, there's a number of things happening. Number one, they, the first argument that the guy makes was Arbery was, the media is misreporting because he wasn't near his house. Arbery was 10 miles away from his house over, and they look it up over Google Maps, uh, from his neighborhood to Satya Heights, which is the neighborhood he was in, at, or Satya States. Is it States? I think it's, uh, whatever the neighborhood salt. he was yeah, in. Yeah. The assaults. Um, the, or, I don't know. Some, yeah. I don't really care how far it was. He could have been in another state jogging for all I care. Doesn't none of this justifies anything. Um, but the, the, the double standard I watched play out is essentially this. And this guy argued it tooth and nail or, you know, to the bone was it is not fair to assume intent on the part of the McMichaels, assume racial and racist intent on the part of the McMichaels. You can't just assume, like, it's not fair to them, and it's not fair to just assume that what they did was racist. Mm -hmm. And then I proceed to watch that guy for the next 30 minutes make nothing but assumptions, both in the McMichaels' favor and directly against then uh, Arbery. For example, he starts talking about how they, they were chasing him down and to perform a citizen's arrest, and one of the things he says is, you know, I can only assume that they told him, stop, I'm putting you under citizen's arrest. And he's like, and I can only assume they had already called the cops prior to chasing him down. Those are the things that he starts saying. He starts assuming this of them. And then he starts assuming uh, of Arbery that that Arbery uh, attacked with intent to kill um, instead of, you know, any sort of self-defense mode. And, um, you know, why is Arbery just continue to run? Why does why doesn't he when he sees a truck? Why doesn't he turn the other way? I don't know. Maybe because there was another truck behind him, also hunting him down. Um, like you cannot. There is. I don't. I regardless of how justified anyone or was or wasn't, it is entirely unfair. And at this point, it is absolutely racially motivated to sit here and try and say we cannot assume the intent of those who actually shot him. And then proceed to assume the intent right. of Arbery in any decisions he made when he isn't here to defend himself. Yeah, it's a double standard. It's a double standard. It's, it angered me. I had to stop. I actually never finished the video because I was so angry after that. And well, I, I, yeah. And I will say this: in most conspiracy theories on either side of the fence, that's what they do. Hundred percent. It's two percent fact. Um, an argument saying. In order for this to work, you can't do X, Y, and Z. And then an hour and a half of you proceeding. And we talked about this on our conspiracy videos thing. An hour and a half of you making arguments from X, Y, and Z. Yep. You know, the very thing that you said you can't do. Um, it, you know, it's that typical, you know, answering a question with a question. It's like, you're not answering what's going on. You're, you're clearly making a double standard because if you say, well, you can't assume this but you can assume this. Well, that, that's, that's completely arbitrary. Yep. If you say in order for this to happen and, and I, you know, being fully transparent, you have to assume this. If that's what happened and we're assuming that, then this is a possibility, but they go, no, this is fact when it's an assumption. And, and that's the issue right there is that, you, in order to make something look and justify something in a terrible situation, you have to 
you have to use arguments that double back against themselves. And that's the issue. And, you know, when I see, I've, I've seen so many comments, I just don't even go on Facebook anymore. I had to do a Facebook live event for, um, the, the greater Milwaukee area did devotion. And I was like yeah. on for like eight seconds and all eight seconds of me just scrolling like, Oh, let's see what's on the nope. Straight to the, straight <laughs> to the group. Cause I'm like, there's just so much. Yeah. And I'm like, I can't, I can't handle the level of, I mean, the amount of people that I've unfriended and, and unadded since I kind of took a little break from social media and then went back on, it's like, Oh wow. Okay. You, you, some of you guys are just off the wall. Yeah. I can't handle this. And, that's the reality is, is that's the only way you can, you can make that happen. And that's what bothers me about the situation, right? I'm not saying that Ahmad Arbery wasn't the guy that stole the gun. I'm not saying that the McMichaels don't have a, a state citizen's arrest, you know, I'm not saying yeah. any of that. What I am saying is there are certain assumptions that can and cannot be made. And I think that, you know, when we came together and talked about, you know, this case, it's like, there are so many arguments that are being made that try to justify the taking of a human life. When in that moment, there's no possible way mm -hmm. that all of that could have flashed through their mind. Um, you know, and I, I grew up knowing police officers and even they will say there were certain assumptions. It was in the moment. You can't know that yeah. you have, you have to rely on training and certain things. Um, and, and unfortunately sometimes it, mm -hmm. those things lead to terrible, terrible events happening, but at least those officers are trained to have that. Yeah. When you look at this, it was like, this is just two citizens. Well, Even if one was former, it doesn't matter. If we want to talk about assumptions or conspiracies, if there's anyone in this story that would have an in integral understanding of things that criminals or, you know, potential criminals, um, say in order to avoid prosecution right it would be gregory mcmichael right like if there's anyone in that situation that would know exactly what to say and exactly how to handle this um you know it would be a cop it would be a cop yeah which doesn't surprise me as to why the police were called after the moment happened and not before um now i will say i don't think that they went out with the in, with you know with the intent to shoot him from the start um, I do think that they intended it to be a confrontation, but the the reality is they were prepared for it to end that way. Yep. They may not have fully intended. I don't really care. One of the things that I've I've said for probably a year now is kind of one of the favorite my favorite phrases is that malice does not care about intent. Yeah. You can be completely malicious in your behavior towards someone else, regardless of what you intended for that person. Yeah. And yeah. So we're gonna get away from the details specifically of the case. Now I want to expand this conversation uh, to talk about a couple things moving forward now as to what do we do about this and, and how do we wrestle with this? Um, talked about a couple things and there's actually going to be the entire next point is part of why uh, it's just me and Tony on this episode. There's no guest. Um, yeah. The entire next point is exactly why uh, it is the two of us. It's not that, I don't want any people, you know, person of color's voice on this show or this episode, um, but rather you'll see momentarily. Um, so I would love for you to read this next part if you would. Um, but Michael Nixon, who is the vice, uh, vice president for diversity and inclusion at Andrews University, 
is an Adventist university in Michigan. Um, he is a former lawyer. I believe he lived in New York um, prior. I want to say yes. I think that's right. Um, anyway, he is very outspoken in things like this. He's probably the most outspoken administrator on social issues and racial issues, period. Um, yeah. That dude runs his Twitter like he isn't a VP, and I love it. I'm all here. I'm here for it. <laughs> um, but he posted a status uh, last week on his Facebook and uh, just thought like this perfectly. This is the exact reason why right now it, it, it is it is Tony and me, everything that's about to come for the next five to 10 minutes. But yeah, Tony, would you read the actual sure. uh, post? Uh, so this is, this is what he said. I just going to put this out there up front. R E hashtag Ahmad Arbery. What I'm not going to do is participate in any kind of discussion slash panel slash forum, which inevitably pivots to asking me a black person to tell America how to prevent this from continuing to happen or what to tell other black men what they should slash shouldn't do in order to stop being killed. This is really simple. The only injustices that are allowed to happen in America are the ones that those in the privileged majority culture, those in power, allow to happen or are silent about when they happen. Unless and until they stop allowing it to happen with no resistance at all, the conversation is meaningless. I don't have any other answers for you. Stop allowing it to happen, and then maybe the mods who are still alive for now may have a fighting chance. Stop telling us it's our fault or it's our problem to solve. America has been designed to operate this way. If you think it needs redesigning, feel free to take the lead. We're waiting. Hashtag Black Lives Matter to us. So, if if there's someone out there that disagrees with you know any minute point in all of this, um, I, I I can immediately see someone disagreeing. For example, with America has been designed to operate this way. Um, not really interested in that specific conversation right this second, though it it is one worth having. Um, I want to talk about the overall point in this, which and kind of his initial uh, his initial point where he says, you know, if anyone I'm not going to participate in any interview panel discussion forum, uh, which inevitably pivots to asking me a black person to tell America how to prevent this from continuing to happen. And so I'm going to be clear on the next two parts here. Number one, white people and very much, I fall into that category. Um, and as does Tony, as far yep. as aesthetically, right. Um, I, I, I'm white. Like, yeah, we're white. I can be Latino all I want. Like I'm white. We're white. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I walk down the street. I'm white. Yes, I am white. Um, we keep, and I have on this show several times. In fact, pretty much any time that we've talked about any sort of racial issue on this show with a, with any person of color, uh, we keep asking people of color in general, how to stop these hateful acts or what practical steps we can take, or how do we educate people about racism, etc. The bottom line is that many of us will spend so much time asking how to prevent it that we won't actually ever do anything to prevent it. Like we won't actually do anything to make changes. And if we keep asking what hatred, what malice and what racism looks like, we keep having to ask, how is that? How is what that, you know, how is what happened here? Racist. Um, and if we keep just asking them how to stop it, even after centuries of people of color teaching us how, then we are willfully creating space for that same hatred, malice and racism to thrive say this again we keep asking what hatred malice and racism look like and how to stop it even after centuries of people of color teaching us 
then we are willfully creating space for that same hatred, malice, and racism to thrive. Because the more time we spend asking what do we do, the less we actually get done. And what ends up happening is we, I think, very meaning, very, very well-intentioned, once again, intent does not, or malice does not care about your intent, um, out of, out of a, operating out of white guilt, we would rather ask black people and people of color how to stop these things and have them give us the answers, which then absolves us of our guilt because we care and we've asked them and we've engaged with them trying to educate ourselves. But then we, you know, by absolving ourselves of that guilt by asking them, now we don't actually have to deal with the racist ideologies that exist and continue the plagues of the minds or, or continues to plague the minds of people that we may actually be in relationship with. In other words, I can ask a black person all day, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? While I let my Facebook feed or my Twitter feed or my family members at the dinner table at Thanksgiving um, or my friends while we're, while we're hanging out on the couch watching a movie or whatever, um, they can make all of the racist comments and hateful rhetoric that they want, and I will never stop them. And that is a normal thing that happens where we will continue to ask people of color how to fix it, and then we will do absolutely nothing to fix it. Even when they've told us that that's what you do to fix it, is confront those ideologies. Like, that's... Let me put this more specifically, because you might think like, oh, well, I don't want to cause tension, or I don't want to cause problems, or I don't want to... Um, you know, I don't... I, you know, this is part... I love this person. They're my family, or, you know, I've tried already, and it's, you know, they just... They just... Uh, they don't listen. The bottom line is at this point, when white people choose to do this, as those in the majority, um, majority race or ethnicity, um, we would rather people of color die in the streets than risk some tension at the dinner table or in a Facebook comment thread. At this point, I don't like. I don't know how else to say that. I would rather continue to let the lives of people of color be put at risk just because I don't want to risk this personal relationship I have. Now I can understand someone saying, well, you know, I shouldn't have to sacrifice all of my personal relationships for people that I don't know. And to some level, sure. I'm not telling you to, <laughs> that's not what I'm saying at all. Um, I just think that it's a little ridiculous to even, I put this point on Facebook <laughs> Got into got in some really good discussions about it, but essentially, I think there is no greater display of privilege and oppression um, than being able to willfully uh, participate in these conversations or willfully reject participation in these con confrontations and conversations, um, and have absolutely no personal risk at the, because you've rejected it. Right? Like to some extent, people of color engaging these in these conversations uh, is is them trying to better their situation. And if they actively do not participate in these conversations, then nothing changes. If we don't actively participate, then nothing changes for us and it's already good for us. So it literally is an act of, it is a display of privilege to be able to even reject those conversations and have absolutely zero consequences for having done so. Yep. I, I don't know of another way to really say this other than that. Um, I actually, in that same comment thread, or in that same post that I made, a friend of ours, and not trying to call them out uh, in a way that's like, haha, they're terrible for this, but they made a comment that, that pretty much exemplified this exact point. 
they had said that um, they had asked for examples of politicians who had been engaging in in um, in racist activity, period, whether through policy or through comments or whatever. And then he said at the end of his comment, full disclosure, I haven't watched the news in like three years because every time I watched it, it was just so frustrating. Like, like that right there is my entire point. You are in a place where you can choose to not watch the news and not be informed and your life is great. Where someone else may not, the next time they get into a confrontation or the next time they see something, it could go really bad because they were uninformed as to the realities that might plague them. Like, I don't, that is the privilege. <laughs> That's the privilege. Well, it's like, it's like being the CEO at a company, right? The only people that actually have to worry about HR are the people who can get fired. Um, yep. Yeah. You know I mean, like the CEO, you know, or CFO or whatever, you know, they can kind of just do whatever they want. Um, and unless it hits public opinion or becomes a huge legal matter, they don't really have to pay attention to the memos that HR is putting out. They can just do whatever they want. Yep. Well, and I mean, look at this point, if you can't identify what's racist, like if you can't identify when someone's being mistreated, like what does that say about how much you consider the world around you? Like how much does that say about any sort of empathy or even sympathy that you carry? that you can't even identify and that you need to ask a victim what a bully punching them looks like. Well, it's, it's, it's myopic. It's yeah. myopic. A lot of, a lot of the people that I have met in this great nation, um, don't have to think about it. All right. So I, again, I've, I've said this comment before. I'll say it again. A very well-intentioned, all right. Uh, non-malicious, um, non, not intentionally malicious. I'll say that. Let me, let me augment that. A person that I know once said, well, 90% of, you know, white people don't have a problem with black people. That to me was, it was such an incredibly ignorant statement. Mm hmm. But I know for a fact that 90% of their world didn't have a problem with black people. This person had spent time in Missouri. Okay. Missouri, for those of you who may not remember, is where Ferguson exists. And when the FBI went in to investigate Ferguson, they found one of the worst cases of systemic racism and all over that state. Um, I talked to someone who was from Missouri and I, and I mentioned this. I'm like, yeah, it's like a really bad state forgetting they were from Missouri. I'm like, yeah, it's kind of all over. And then I was like, Oh no. And they agreed with me and they were like, Oh yeah, no, it's bad. Right. You know, I, I basically, you know, went out and insulted, you know, someone's home state and they were like, yeah, no, it's pretty bad. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's like me talking about, you know, uh, Californians, man, they're all like West coast, weird, you know, hippies. And you know, I'm from Cali. I'm like, Oh no, you're accurate. You know, it isn't, but it's like, yeah, no, it's pretty bad, right? They were agreeing with me. And, and so the level of ignorance to say, well, 90% of, okay, first of all, 90%, I don't know of anything that's 90%. Yeah. Honestly, like in the real world, when it involves people, I mean, everything's in the 60s, 70s. So there's a 90% don't have a problem with. And then the second statement, second part of the statement I had a problem with was don't have a problem with, Okay. Don't have a problem with and racism are two different things. Yeah. 
Because yep. you might not have a problem with black people as a concept, but if you see one wearing a hoodie walking it, right, it, it's that individual group, right? That, that, that dichotomy yeah. of uh, a group of black people are different than the individual black person. Yep. Um, I always say people are incredibly stupid. A person can be smart. Yeah. But people, when you put a group, it's, it's incredibly different. So you, you can't, it, it, there's a difference between people, people. So 90% black people, but that doesn't change how you react. And this is the issue that yeah. people have is that they have this myopia where unless it involves the world, I see, I have to look and say, well, I don't see any racism. Yeah. Well, my, I mean, my cousins aren't racist. My things aren't racist. And again, even that's not true because if you actually stop and ask, I mean, I, I want to be careful. Someone who was very close to this individual who made that statement was a racist. And I know because I had many conversations with this person and they made several racist comments again, not maliciously. Yeah. They weren't like, Oh, I hate them. It was, Oh, they're this way. And Oh, if they're this way. And it's like, no, that's, you're assuming that because of their skin color, that they are worse than you, that their actions are less than that's racism. And so that was, again, it was like, if you, if you actually stopped and said it, you know, that's not true, but a, you've been coached in that all you see is the world around you. And all you listen to are the voices that are telling you, ah, that's no, yeah. it's totally fine. Yep. So this is, this is the issue that we have is that myopia of realizing that I can get away if I don't see it, if it doesn't exist in my immediate surroundings, it must not exist for anybody else. And it's an ignorant statement. Well, and not only that, like if I can find one example where this isn't where, you know, this doesn't seem to be the case then it invalidates your experience. Right. Um, right. I actually watched this happen in uh, everyone's favorite conservative, um, Ben Shapiro. Um, and by everyone's, I mean virtually no one's. Um, I don't even, I, I know a lot of conservatives that don't like him. So yeah. Yeah, no, I know. Ben Shapiro is interesting. Um, he's well-spoken. About as far as that goes. Um, but I want, he, he gave his hot take on Ahmaud Arbery, which actually for 90% of it wasn't bad. Talked about the case really hinging on the interpretation of citizens' arrest and some of that, and some of what the jury will have to actually deliberate on and figure With the out the legal. And it jargon. wasn't, yeah, it wasn't. I thought there wasn't any big issues there. The issue was when he start, he's he pivoted and he said, "Now the media would have you believe this or see this," and and they would talk about it. You know, they would talk about it in this way that's so racist, just like they did with Walter Scott, the shooting of Walter Scott in South Carolina a few years ago. And what's so funny about that is he says. I mean, the media was crying racist. Everyone was crying racist up until the dude, the cop was arrested and then put in jail for first degree murder. No one's saying anything about it now. So, you know, the media is just going to hype all this up and look for the thing to hype up and no one's saying about it now. And like, I'm sitting here going, yeah, because the justice system did its job. Yeah. No one's going to walk up and throw you a party because you did your job. Like you did the very basic part of your job, which is frying a criminal and then putting them away. Like I don't. And, and again, you know, you, that assumes that if you hadn't cried racism, it still would have happened. Exactly. Which if you know the case of Walter Scott, there's uh, a lot of questions whether or not that would have happened in the same way that it's likely this would have never happened right. if that video hadn't come to light. 
Yeah. Now you may want to argue with me. Well, they've arrested the McMichaels. They haven't been. They've been denied bond. Whatever. There's still a D. There's still two DAs that have recused themselves. There's one DA that actually the day of the shooting, the DA personally told the the cop at the scene, "Do not arrest them." Like there was a multiple level cover up of this until the video got out, and at that point, the GBI got involved. The president even made a comment on this, which. President's making some comments that clearly remind me that it's election year. Um, <laughs> yeah. The, um, but it's just like, no, there's still a lot to complain about, right. which is the fact that these men were allowed to walk free, completely untried for this for two months for over two months. That's disgusting. Well, and I, I was reading an article in, and I think it was the New York times and one of the spokesperson or somebody for the, uh, for the the officers, right? The department, yeah. which when they when the GBI went in and started investigating, they're like, "Oh, oh, oh! This is a <laughs> yeah, a giant <laughs> uh, mess." Let's just say that for for <laughs> decency's sake, um, this is a gigantic mess. Uh, they were defending and saying, "Well, you know, how is it their fault?" You know, the guy who's going to prosecute it saying, "Don't bother." Um. And I think he had a valid argument there. I don't think it absolves everything at all, but I think you absolutely have an argument of the guy who's trying to, you know, somebody asked me a question about that. And I go, look, have you ever seen law and order very beginning of that? It tells you right. There are two sides of the justice system, right? The legal and you know, the investigative and the, you know, the, the cops, cops and lawyers. And so if the lawyer is saying, yeah, I'm not going to try this. Why are you going to arrest now? I'm not saying they shouldn't have. Um, I think when somebody is killed, whether or not that's murder or manslaughter, you should probably arrest them. Um, really detain them. Like if something, something needs to happen, you need to come downtown. Yeah. Figure right. We need to talk about this. Even if it's, even if it's a straight up clean self-defense, you know, it was in my home. I fired a warning shot. You know, we have video of it. You should still come downtown uh, and, you know, be detained. But until everything, right, until it all gets sorted out, hey, this is the reality. Someone got killed. We want to make sure none of that happened. So, again, the situation was bungled, even if. So, to me, all that statement says is it's pointing the finger to the more screwed up system saying, Hey, this screwed this system screwed up way worse than we did. And I'm like, that's not making the, it's not making the case any better. Yeah. Um, and, and again, it, it goes back to the myopia, right? It, it's that <laughs> I, I, you know, they broke the lamp broker. So we shouldn't get, you know, I don't know why everyone has a problem with us. We only smacked the guy twice. They smacked him five times. Like, it doesn't matter. You you screwed up. And yeah. it's that myopia that to me is the biggest problem in this situation. Because again, if you can't you can't step back and have the perspective of say, look, this was this was messed up. And be able to say, look, I might not have understand this. I might not understand. I might never have been uh, racially profiled or whatever, but I can see that this is a problem. If you can't have that level of maturity and critical thinking skills then that tells me a lot more about, again, about you, which is why I think we need to have these conversations so that we can stop just asking, how do we get rid of this? 
and actually yeah. stop and realize, well, it's by not thinking it doesn't exist. Well, and there's, there is a certain group of people, you know, there, there are certain people that say, well, look, I, when this stuff happens, you know, I go to my, 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 uh, friends who are people of color and I try to ask them like, what do I do? How can I serve you? What, you know, how do I, how do I navigate this? And they, you know, they mean, so they mean the, the best. However, I want to, I want to paint an illustration here because while you're, what you're doing at a base level is good. You're asking for help on something that you don't fully understand. Well, at a base level, that's good. Here's the problem. All of the resources that you need to figure that out for the most part are already there. Um, while asking those close to you what you can do to be helpful is, you know, something that you can do and should do, especially for those that are close to you. Remember that Google exists and that we're perfectly capable of Googling those resources, finding books, podcasts um, on things like systemic racism, prejudice, systems of oppression. You can find histories of redlining. Look up a reverse redlining. Yeah. There's there's yeah. that's nasty uh, where now they're issuing predatory loans to borrowers that they know can't afford. Uh, in the same neighborhoods that would have been redlined when redlining was legal. Uh, look up the racist origins of the drug war from the Nixon era. Um, you can look up any number of, of, you know, any, any number of racist historical moments and begin to understand systemic oppression and prejudice and racism. But what we're asking people to do is what people ask me to do with podcasting all the time, which is, Hey, can I call you real quick? And you can just give me the speed since you've already done all the research for me. It's asking for a fast forward button through your education. Um, and then you'll never actually, and when you do that, you'll never actually own the education that you have. Um, let me put it, and, and, and to, the, to the people of color that you do this to, or that, and that I've done this to, um, one more kind of example here to help explain this. Imagine if you worked a desk job and different people kept coming up to you all day, every day, asking you how to log into their computers simply because they saw that you had logged in already, but they couldn't figure it out. Now also imagine that there's a whole break room or conference room full of materials on how to log into your computer. There's a big sign on the door that says, find out how to log into your computer in this room that you put up that you put up. <laughs> exactly. Um, and uh, you still go to the guy that's logged in and ask him to do it. Your one question to that person might not be a problem, but we've talked about this um, in the case of the, um, it's not a thousand cuts, but it was the, the, the experiment from the. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. The death, the death by a thousand burns. Yeah. Yeah. Where I'm, I'm, I might not be causing problems, but if a thousand of us do it, I could kill you. Exactly. It's the aggregate. And if you become one of many that are probably talking to them about this or asking them about this. And I specifically remember talking with a friend of this podcast um, about, about, racism in general and one of the things that i told him before we recorded an, an interview together was i had said hey i'm going to ask you about an experience with racism that you've had can you would you be willing to share one and he said depends and i was like well what do you mean and he goes normally when i get asked that question by white people they're going they immediately turn around and use the exact experience i share to invalidate all of my claims so i have a hesitancy to share my experience and educate you because I don't know if you're just going to turn around and try and weaponize my yeah, experience against right. me. Yeah. And tell me why I'm wrong and blowing it out of proportion. Like there is a level of distrust that has now been built. Not even now it's been built. And it is amazing to me that then we get mad when people who are operating out of pain and hurt 
are are uh, lashing out as a result. No one, no one deserves to spend their whole life trying to justify why they should be allowed to jog down the street in peace, why they and their loved ones shouldn't be profiled all day long, and why their value and worth as a human being should be equivalent to anyone and everyone else. So for us to continually ask them to do so, when all of the resources are available to us, is a slap in the face and is, quite honestly, a form of racism. Right? We are telling you, stop living your life and answer my questions so that I can feel better, so that I can treat you better. If you can't figure out how to treat someone better, <laughs> like, that's on you. I, like, it's not, we're asking the victims to solve a problem that they didn't create. And yeah, while I don't want the same people that wrote racist laws to be the ones to repeal them, I mean, ideally, actually, I would, because they means with it, they would have changed and transformed. What it means is we have the power to vote new people in. We have the we can show up and actually have a say in what's going on. We can show up to town hall meetings like we can get involved, well, of you, which I, I mean, need to do more of. People don't realize like you can write a proposal for a bill. Most yep. people don't realize this, um, but you can you can write a proposal for an amendment, a bill, whatever, and have that sent to right. Get a grassroots, have it sent. Obviously, they will augment it you know till kingdom come because that's how politics work but you can do that as a citizen and send it to your local representative and have them you know hey this is something we would like to see this happen and this is a way that we think could work um they might respond to you they can ignore they can do whatever you want but i mean you can actually do that yeah you can't do that in a lot i mean you can't do that in the people's republic of china yeah i mean you just can't it's not a better or worse situation you just can't um it's not how the government works so we have that ability um, but I'm, you know, I mean, quite frankly, if we can't get people to go out and vote, we're not going to get people to, to write an amendment to a bill, but that's the issue that we have is, is that level of just, just, you have to actually do it. Yeah. Stop asking and actually do it. Um, you have to be able to confront people mm-hmm. and that, and that's the first step I would say. First step is when it, you, once you've been reading and, and educated yourself on all of this. Yeah. When someone comes up and they say, and, and look, here's the reality. You're not going to change the mind. I, I have a friend and they were asking, you know, how do you change the mind on a, on a separate issue? It wasn't racism, but something else. And they're like, when someone is so ingrained in this type of thinking, this incorrect type of thinking, like their response was like, well, I don't even bother because they're just going to think that way. And my response to that was, but you can start the process. Yep. You're not going to change it in that conversation. But what you can do, and what you have to do is chip a handhold mm-hmm. so that the next time you can chip a little higher and chip a little more and break it down. You know, you have mm-hmm. to break down that wall slowly, but if you can sow a little bit of seed of doubt, all of a sudden that pressure starts building in to be like, well, maybe this isn't the only way. Well, and I might honestly, have been taught this way racist, but it isn't the only way. A refusal to confront them and allow them to continue to be in your their, in your life on you know uncontested is to essentially admit that racism to you is not a non negotiable in your friendships. In fact, it's to legitimately say I'm completely okay with racism in my friendships and I will do nothing to stop it and draw no boundaries other than to say I won't talk about it. It's more like don't ask, don't tell, uh, more than anything else. But if you can't figure out how to confront your family members or friends who exhibit racist attitudes and ideologies without that friendship being completely compromised or destroyed, um, if that's your goal, ultimately, if you then it means like. Or not, it means if you haven't done that, if you can't figure that out or you haven't worked 
up a relationship um, to be the strength that allows it, you know, to the level where when you do confront them, they don't hear it as you judging them. They hear it out of love and trust that allows that confrontation to be effective, right? If we're at a level of closeness, the reason that it never works with your extended family at the dinner table at Thanksgiving is because that's the only time you ever talk to them the entire year other than a call at Christmas too, right? If you haven't done any of the work to build up those relationships to the point that that confrontation is actually potentially effective, no person of color is going to be able to help you. Like your relationships are on you. My relationships are on me to solve and navigate. Yeah. No one else. And you might not. There's some people that I have family members extended um, that say things and I look and I'm just like, I'm never going to convince them. They're wrong. They're hundred percent wrong. I can prove it factually, ideologically, theologically, all the ologies. Um, I'm just never going to convince them. It's just not going to happen. And it's not an issue of, I can do it any which way until I get sick of banging my head against the wall. I guess it's just not going to happen. So all you can do is just to say, look, I don't bring that up next to me. If you're going to say that, if you're going to do that, you're, you're incorrect, wrong. I don't want to have a discussion. Like this is not okay. And you just have to live with the fact that you're not going to have that peaceful relationship. Cause here's the thing, your moment of peace has a cost. Um, yeah, absolutely. In Christian hi- hiding behind a desire to be too political is literally or costing desire to people. not be too political. Right. Right. To not be too political is literally costing people life. Yeah. Right? At, at this point in human history, we all have the internet literally centuries of education and what racism looks like, you know, the amount of conversations that have been happening. If you refuse to deal with this problem now, at this point, you're, you're complicit. Mm -hmm. You're complicit. Yeah. Um, I, I don't, the you is very general, by the way. It could be the listen. It could be yeah. you, know, you who are listening. The people uh, who are out it's, there. It's it's a general it's like the if someone you. does right. this. Yeah. So it could be you. It's me. It's Tony. It's, it's my not dog. Easy. Everyone. It's not easy. That's the other thing. Okay. This is not easy. They're not easy conversations, which is why a lot of people don't want to have it. It's a lot easier to not hate yourself than convincing other people not to hate. Um, that's a difficult conversation. But again, your uncomfort, your discomfort, uncomfort, wow, your discomfort um, could potentially help save lives. Yeah, absolutely. Okay? If, if you got a little uncomfortable, okay, but you were able to make sure that firemen went into a fire and came out protected, you would do it in a heartbeat, right? If you're, ah, firemen don't need, and you're like, no. Firemen need better helmets, right? Mm. I mean, think about the amount of football conversations, right? I've had to have difficult conversations about football, American football. I have to say American because it's not the real football. American football, because I'm like, look, it's literally killing the people. You and I can talk about whether or not, you know, there's a, you know, it's worth it, the millions of dollars or whatever, but it's literally killing people. I have to have difficult conversations about that. Yep. It's a sport. But having those difficult conversations could potentially save the life of, say, this person has a kid and they say, I remember the one dude said it killed them. You know what? I'm not going to let my kid play. Or I'm going to at least think about it. Mm-hmm. That could save their life, me having that conversation. I mean, there's a direct link. So that's, it's important to have those. 
even if it seems like it's silly, this is not a silly situation. My discomfort in that conversation would be like, look, it might be a sport you love. You might think it's whatever, but it's literally killing those people. It might have given you an education, but it also is killing you. And your education came at the cost of how many thousands of others who didn't. Yeah. Well, and even the idea that you get to choose when you're going to be uncomfortable by, you know, by engaging. Right. In that yeah. I mean, yeah. Once again, display a privilege because for you, you can, you can do that. And for your all intents and purposes, your life is likely consequence free. Um, but think about how many conversations the McMichaels could have had prior to, or people could have had with the McMichaels prior to this incident happening that may have actually served to prevent this. If, if each of those conversations had chipped away at some of the biases that existed, right? Yeah. Like, Think of think of how many of those conversations may have had to happen, but how many didn't yeah. to get there. Yeah. Well, and you know, speaking as a Christian, I mean, this is even more true in the Bible, right? I mean, how many times yeah. does it talk about like xenophobia, racism? I mean, those are those are recurring issues and themes. You know, yeah. I, Israel viewed anyone outside of themselves as, right, like as being less than, yeah, being less than, not particularly in the by New God. Testament. Yeah. Um, See how God continually shows them they were wrong. Um, there's an amazing, in fact, I, I have a great quote. Um, I recently sent it to a friend of mine, but I want to read it really quickly. Um, so it says this, the Bible is clear. Moabites are bad. They were not to be allowed to dwell among God's people, Deuteronomy 23. But then comes the story of Ruth the Moabite, who challenges the prejudice against Moabites. The Bible is clear. People from Oz are evil, Jeremiah 25. But then comes the story of Job, a man from us who was the most blameless man on earth. Bible is clear. No foreigners or eunuchs are allowed. Uh, Deuteronomy 23. But then comes the story of an African eunuch who's welcomed in the church and the first convert outside of Judaism in, in Acts 8. Bible is clear. God's people hated Samaritans. But then Jesus tells a story that shows all Samaritans are bad. In fact, woman at the well, first evangelist, is a Samaritan. The story may begin with prejudice, discrimination, and animosity, but the spirit moves God's people mm-hmm. towards openness, welcomeness, inclusion, acceptance, and affirmation. That was Bixby Knoll. Mm. And, you know, I don't know the rest of the theology behind, you know, don't, don't, don't keep going with Bixby Knoll, but that quote itself, I mean, it just shows you how often the Bible dealt with these issues, racism, xenophobia, it pops up a lot mm. and God immediately turns it on its head. And worth pointing out that everything written in the Bible, especially some of like all the, all the pre, all the hatred stuff, right? So everything about the Moabites being bad or people from us being bad or Samaritans being bad, right? Uh, just because it's recorded that way does not actually mean that the Bible endorses that outlook or that, that perspective. Um, in fact, the entire book of Judges is, in an, is, a, is a one giant object lesson in what not to do. Right. Um, and even, even Paul says in Romans, I believe it's Romans 9 or Roman, yeah, I think it's Romans 9 where he says, yeah, all these things that Israel did were written down so that you would know not to do them. Like, right? Yeah, it's the it's the biggest failure. Yeah, story. Like, don't do that. And and please understand, like Israel as a whole, like people of God that that are you know students of the Word that have so much to teach us about the beauty of the Old Testament. Um, and so none of that is indictment on you know no 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 of Israel. Course. But yeah, a lot of the decisions that people in the Old Testament made were terrible decisions, right. I mean, objectively it, speaking. It, it ends with them going into exile. I mean, it literally ends with them facing the punishment for not obeying God. So yeah, it's one of those things of these are a lot of life lessons to learn to avoid. Don't do this. Don't do that. Every once in a while, you'll have, you know, Joseph or uh, Joe Ash, or, you know, 
these wonderful stories of like, Hey, we're going to come in and, and clean it up. But for the most part, you know, it's, it's how to, we have less of an excuse to allow racism to thrive because of what was written in the old Testament, mm-hmm. because yeah. of the mistakes that they made. And we saw how God corrected them. We have less of an excuse. Yep. And so speaking of that, and, and as we've gotten on Christianity, I want to kind of, this is going to be my contribution to this entire conversation. And I think it's a good one that we can, we can begin to wrap up on. Um, but I think this is the one contribution that I feel I have not, that I have not seen elsewhere yet. Um, not saying that it's, bad um the actually the idea itself i did get from elsewhere um however the way that it connects back to this um i think is the one contribution i can make to this that i haven't seen and so um essentially it's this there's a big difference that i have seen between uh progressives and conservatives and the difference like there 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 are key things within this this difference uh, that I believe is why quite a few racist attitudes still exist within Christianity specifically. This is a fundamental difference in the way that each group, progressives and conservatives, liberals, traditional, whatever your, you know, whatever your, your, your opposite labels are for, for those groups, um, you know, in the way that they, each group looks at the world through the lens of the gospel. Right? It's a fundamental difference in the way each group looks at the world through the lens of the gospel. And it's summed up in this quote. Essentially, conservatives see the kingdom of God as something coming in the future that God will bring to them. And eventually God will then bring them to. Liberals or progressives tend to see the kingdom of God as something that we can realize now that God will do the work of completing. So let me be clear. In what I'm about to say, because I am not saying that progressives are perfect and and oh, evil conservatives, uh, nor am I saying that conservatives are great and progressives are bad. Both have their flaws. I say that as someone who, it, for all intents and purposes, is a progressive. Um, I'm not saying that only conservatives are racist or that conservatism as a, as a whole is evil. I'm simply pointing at a root worldview that can lead to a defeatist outlook that allows racism to thrive. If you believe that God will fix all of our problems one day in the future, because God is coming soon, then there is less reason to do anything about those problems. Now, if the problem will be solved one day, then all we need to do is patiently await the day of the Lord. While progressives tend to see these things tend to see the world as something or the kingdom of God specifically as something that can be strove toward now, meaning that they, be, that that progressives by and large will believe that the world can begin to look like the kingdom of God while we wait on the Lord. The difference then results in two different versions of the gospel being presented. Um, both incomplete, by the way, just so we're clear. Both of these are incomplete. So, but at the at the end of the day, one of these can justify a racist outlook, or at least allowing or being complicit in racism existing, right? right. More Much more other. so than the other. Yes, conservatives will preach in order to hasten the day of the Lord. In fact, within the most conservative circles within Adventism, you'll see this. Um, You'll see this at the end of letters that our church leaders will write on occasion, and um, you'll start to see 
things like you know we we need to focus on on preaching the three angels well, message it, it, so we you know yeah, to hasten it's the, the great motivation day of the Lord. for everything yep. the only reason why i do evangelism isn't because i want to care about other people it's because i want to get to heaven yep and this is what we must do in order for jesus to come well and aside from you know the theology on whether or not you believe that we can hasten the day of the lord or if that's a biblical idea i don't that's not my right, point right, right. but that's this yeah. is what we need to yeah. do so the idea is i'm going to preach the gospel because the things like racism can be solved quicker if we would all just preach that and hasten the day because once the gospel gets preached to everyone jesus comes back it kicks off revelation and we're all good right so as long if we can get that preached faster if we would all just focus on that jesus comes so all of the energy goes towards to goes toward preaching about jesus's love and his soon coming without much behavior and energy given toward transforming our present reality. It's the nameless, faceless God, right? Uh, Our obedience, our offense, everything is to nameless, faceless God, right? It's to, you need to live a pious life because you are disobeying God's law. It's breaking this ideological future concept, um, which has very little present practical realities other than you not doing these quote unquote sinful, you know, yep. things or things that are ungodly yep. um, versus, you know, a practicality. Right. So, yes. so that, that gospel tends to look up at a nameless faceless God instead of the people around us. Yes. Typically when tragedy strikes people in this group or that would think this way, would be the first to say, Lord Jesus, come soon. Like, Jesus, come quickly. You know, the, in other Throw words, up the, our hands yeah, the, and just go, oh, I can't wait for another someone else to shooting. solve this. Another mass shooting. If we, only. Jesus needs to, Jesus needs to come quickly. Yep. And this is also why I believe which, that, which I, let's be clear. Yes, he does. I, I am yes. not disagreeing yeah, yeah, yeah. with that, but that's what they'll yeah. do. They just put their hands up and go, oh, Jesus needs to come quickly. Yes. Nothing we can do. And this is also why I believe the conservatives tend to hold the in the world, not of the world to such a separatist extent. In other words, we don't want to engage the world because the world is lost. So we need to meet together in our safe havens, the church. You know, we need to make that church the sanctuary. We need to make that as good as and as great as it can be, because that's where the reflection of God's kingdom will be here. That's the place that will look like God's kingdom. But there's not much we can do about the world outside of our doors. Um you know, we need to be protected from that fallen world until Jesus solves the problem. Oh, the terrible heathens outside mm-hmm. are they, they, they you know, mm-hmm. there's nothing you can do. Yep. They can be fixed if they come into our safe haven and become like us, but we can't do anything for them as long as they are not here. I mean, look, we held the evangelistic series and nobody showed up. No one cares about the gospel anymore. Yes. Now, I mean, I, I'm not exaggerating. I have heard literally those yeah, no, phrases. Everything I'm saying here is like verbatim stuff that I, yeah. said to me. Yep. about why a evangelism doesn't work it does it does work and b why oh well you know and you know any changes to you know how we do church or what we can do or presenting a different way well that none of that matters because they're just evil and the word heathens was used out there and there's nothing we can do about that so it's a real thing and and like i've seen all of this happen in and outside of our denomination so like any Adventist that's listening, it's not just us. Oh, no, no, no. But any Christian that's listening that's not Adventist, uh, don't think it's just the Adventists. Right. It's all of us. Um, now, let us let me flip this now um, and talk about progressives. Because progressives will argue that the kingdom of God is something we have a hand in creating and sustaining 
through how we treat one another and how we express Jesus's love through our interactions with each other and the world. In other words, that very much says go out into the world and, and begin doing the work of God to announce the kingdom of God is at hand, announce that it's coming and, and begin to create the world that, that will, that, and begin that work. So that when Jesus comes yeah. back, he's completing the work right. that we've done. Paul talks about that, right? How can they, how can they believe, uh, believing comes from hearing and how can they believe if they have not heard? Yep. How can they hear if someone doesn't preach? How can they preach if they're not sent? How can they say if not? Yeah. Yes. So. so here's the problem with that because progressives don't get off scot-free. The weakness here is that we end up, we, we can become, I'm going to agree with those who would use this term only in this one instance, but we become such social, social justice warriors and we spend so much time and energy fighting for social change that we never actually preach what that social change is rooted in and, in, and of the eternity that we are calling people to embrace now. So we begin to become so tunnel visioned on solving these problems right here, right now, that we never actually, for the people that we're trying to love and, and reach out to, we never actually let them know like what all of this is rooted in and what it's all about. There's no hope beyond if we can't fix this now. You know, we get we get caught up in this and we lose sight of eternity as a result. So both one tunnel visions on the end and one, you know, on the future and one tunnel visions on the present. And so it results in a skewed thing either way. However, I will say the one that tunnel visions at the on the future, that's the one that would allow and be more complicit in racism existing. Now, they will do actively less and significantly less in this regard in order to. Um, because, you know, because we want to wait until Jesus comes, he's going to be the one to solve it. And that's frustrating because it's also arbitrary because those same people will tell you that the sins in your life can be overcome and conquered now before Jesus comes. But nah, not these big, vague sins that, you know, I can't point at you. Yeah. And, yeah. 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 I Well, both sides lose their Christianity. And here's why. One loses their Christianity. Because they will get to heaven and Christ will say, yeah, I'm not going to let you in because when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When Correct. I was thirsty, you didn't let me in. When I was th- And the other will lose their Christianity because they will get there and say, Lord, Lord, look at all these amazing things I did. And he'll say, yeah, but I don't know who you are. You don't know who I am. Yep. You, you lost you, the Christ in Christianity because you focus so much on, on other people that you don't know who I am. Um, now, one would argue that it's a lot you can know who Jesus is without knowing who Jesus is, right? As, as a per, right? Yes. People who love, right? Paul talks about this was saying, you can, you know, everyone is judged because you can see the world around you. So doing those loving acts, you might not know his name, but you might know who Jesus is. But I know for a fact that if you don't love people on earth, you're going to love them later. James, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of books in the Bible where, yeah, if you don't learn to love people here, going to heaven isn't going to all of a sudden you're going to love people, right? Yep. Like that's the whole point is he's saying, yeah, you need to learn to love people here. That being said, both lose their Christianity, right? Uh, if you look at the liberal church, which was started and did so many, I mean, look at the eight, late 1800s, right? This progressive church, liberal church, I mean, they did amazing things for social justice. Um, things would not be as good as they are in this country without the liberal church, but they ended up literally no one shows up to the churches anymore. Mm-hmm. They, they literally, the Bible doesn't count is they lost their Christianity flip side of it. Yeah. There might be a lot of people attending, you know, the more fundamentalist churches, 
but they've lost Christ. I mean, if you can look at the Westboro Baptist Church and say, well, yeah, they're Christian, then you and I need to have a conversation because you don't know the Christ that you're talking about. Yeah, because they don't know. The right? Christ. I would, this, I would this, actually argue that. I have no issue arguing that. That's the side of the church that, you know, I mean, granted, I'm not endorsing any political candidate, but someone joked about Bernie Sanders saying, who knew that a Jew traveling to the country talking about how to love people and try to help them with their, you know, physical changes and healing people would cause such uproar among Christians. Right. I mean, yeah, literally right. A Brown man talking about loving the common person and the gospel is preached to the poor would not do well in fundamentalist churches. So both sides lose their Christianity, but one side will allow things to fester and affect in the now. One side will allow uh, this this current world to continue, and and that the reality is that's the more conservative understanding. Yeah. Um. And and I will say this: I I like to use the word traditional, non traditional. I think you're correct and conservative and liberal for this particular instance. But to I'm me, those are theological. Right. Yeah. 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 Not as a correct. I would not like as an to just on really quickly because I would consider myself those to be theological statements. I consider myself to be conservative. Right. I believe the Bible exists. I believe or is yeah. real the word of God. You know, I have conservative theology, but non-traditional understanding. So my, I would say both of our, you know, I would classify as both of our understanding comes from a conservative, mm-hmm. but non-traditional stance. However, I'd say for this conversation, yeah, I, yeah, you know, we would both be more on the progressive side because it's like, well, if I'm not loving people, I'm not reading what the Bible says. I've, I've long said if you, you even even the most liberal Adventist is likely a conservative oh, Christian, oh, like not even close. If you keep the Sabbath, yeah. regardless of what day someone else keeps the Sabbath as, if you keep the Saturday Sabbath the way that Adventists keep it in any way, shape, or form, even one percent of it, you are still more conservative. Oh yeah. Then yeah, that's that's my point. If you think the Bible is real, you're yeah, on the yeah. you're on the the far end of yes. conservative. So, but I wanted to talk about this. Yeah, within. Just a framework right, right, right. of those, talking, yeah. those mentalities. So I want to offer then a balanced view here. Um, and I hope that this is something that can encourage people in what you're going to do. So there's a couple action steps at the end of this. Yeah. Um, but a balanced view between both the progressive and conservative or traditional, non-traditional uh, perspectives here is a, a balanced lens and perspective of the world would essentially result in us working for the good of the earth and those that live on it now while calling attention to the restorative work that God will do from his end that is offered to everyone. So it would very much see the, the immediate present value that everyone has and seek to restore everyone into that and seek to build them up into that and let them know that it exists, but also call them attention to say that you were not only called for this moment and you were called for eternity. And there is an, there is an eternity waiting yeah, for you. Yeah. Absolutely. That's, that's what I would say a balance is, is saying, I'm going to do something in the here and now to love you and to clothe you, to feed you, to, to give you drink. Right. But Um, even all that isn't enough to save. We have a savior. Because at the end of the day, both extremes that I just talked about result in people dying. Yeah. Because even if I save your life now, there's still eternity at stake. Even if, even if I look at eternity, that doesn't save a life now. Um, it, it is an, an, and preface this in saying that, well, in a, in a, in a purely net gain, like eternity is worth, like is, is, is worth more as far as, you know, if I had to pick one or the other. Um, however, 
just because someone will be saved for eternity is no reason to write them off in the present. Absolutely. So don't, I don't want anyone writing it yeah. saying anything like that. Like, no, 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 that's not how that works. Uh, well, they died now. Well, they, at least they have eternity. That's not how yeah. we, that's yeah. not how we treat no. death. Just well, so we're clear. And I will say, you know, for me, I, you can't choose one without the other. If you don't no. love people now, you're not getting eternity. If you don't value the things that God yeah. values as a result of being in a relationship with God. Yeah. Right. That's why that's, it's, it's a two key. System. What is heaven for you? I love, you know, when we were going through class together and studying theology, you know, I loved um, one of our professors. I name him. Should I just Bauer would, would, would come up and um, we'll have to bleep that out. If, <laughs> if he no, doesn't, um, like he would, he would talk about this as being a two-step process, right? Um, the the here and now and the future right the 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 yet to come and the here and now and he said you know salvation isn't just about the future and it isn't just about the here and now justification happens right now sanctification is a process it's a continuation of that one time event um and we believe that as a, as as a church as a denomination and i think if you read the bible it it, it it's why there's so many fights Right between the camp of the here and now and the yet to come, because you were constantly battling those two things, um, and without getting too deep into it, you know the the Hebrew mindset, the Eastern mindset, can have those that dualism exist. Mm -hmm. um, two things can exist: light and darkness can exist at the same time, um, and it doesn't contradict each other. The very Greek mindset is one that that has you know very separate categories. Um, it tends to be very. Um, What's the phrase where it's a zero sum game, right? It tends to be a very one cannot exist while the other does. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to think of what that, what that phrase is called. It doesn't matter. Point is you can exist in the here and now and still have the yet, not yet. And that's the whole thing to me. You, you can't separate those two. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I think is going to surprise a lot of people and I'm not here to, I'm not here to be a gatekeeper for heaven. Right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm not here to be like, ah, I don't want you in. But I think one of the things that's going to surprise a lot of people in heaven. Well, two things. My dad was telling me two things. You're going to be surprised by a lot of people that get in and they're going to be surprised that you're there. So it's, it's one of those things of, you know, you, you are going to learn so many things about what it meant to love people in the here and now. And so many other people are going to learn about how much of, of the future, the eternity they missed out while here on earth. Mm -hmm. And to me, I think both sides, that's why you, you have to have both sides. I think yep. people are going to get in and still have those missing parts. I don't think anyone's perfectly balanced. I think there was one perfectly balanced person and we killed him. So, I think it's important for us to understand that it is a balance between both and it's a constant fight of trying to understand both sides. But the point is to say, look, just because we have eternity, it doesn't justify us allowing things to fester and exist here. Um, if you look at your brother's suffering and your heart doesn't break for them, you don't know who God is. You don't understand the heart of God. If you see someone suffering, and you and there's no response and and you just are like well you know there you know i remember growing up in california and, and there were uh deportees right um and these were workers 
Um, these were workers that would come in just for a season and then leave. And there was a, a bus crash or a plane crash. I can't remember which, but there was a horrific accident. And over 100 people um, basically burned to death. Hmm. And there was a, a famous quote by a politician that basically said, well, yeah, but they were just deportees. And that's the level, that's, that's the callousness that when you say, well, you know, racism, it's, you know, it's my uncle that that's that, that's that same callousness mm -hmm. because it's, it's costing people lives. There's active suffering going on. Mm -hmm. If you are not doing something about it, if your heart is not breaking because of that situation, then you need to understand that you are missing out on a vital aspect of God's character. Yep. And it, and it could end up costing you eternity. Absolutely. So um, thank you for that, Tony. And as we end, I want to just give you some practical steps moving forward as to what you can do in these areas. Number one, uh, if you do have anyone in, that you're close to, that is a person of color that you're wanting to ask, how do I best serve you? How do I help you? How do I, you know, how do I use my privilege effectively? Um, before you have that conversation, start reading. Every single person of color that I've ever talked to about this is much more willing to have that conversation if they know that you're genuinely interested in that because you've done the research ahead of time. Um, you know, you, you've shown that you're putting an effort to educate yourself. So I would, I would encourage you to first begin to educate yourself. If you have no idea where to begin, you have no idea what to type in the Google search bar. Um, then uh, thanks to Seth Yalorda, who uh, left a comment on my status the other day. Uh, he's listed a few books, um, and I'm going to actually link to those to Amazon. Um, so you can pick those up and start reading. Um, if you're an Adventist, Protest and, Pro uh, and Progress is by Calvin Rock is a great way, to, great place to start. Yeah. yeah. Um, but if you're not Adventist, these books will be perfectly fine for you. Um, but that's the first place to start is begin reading. If you've already done that and you're, you're wondering how do I have these confrontations or whatever, the first thing I would encourage you to do is decide that racism in your presence and in your friendships is not something that you'll stand for. And now, and that will help in the moments when that actually happens and you have the, you know, do or die moment of, do I speak up right here or not? Um, and so, so decide now that that's going to be, and do the work of deciding that now. Um, and then begin looking for those opportunities, um, and use those moments of where you could decide not to remember that it is a moment of privilege to be able to decide, yeah, I don't really need to do this or want to do this because of whatever, you know, whatever discomfort it will cause. Um, keep that in mind and let that motivate you to stand up anyway. Because comfort at the expense of another man's life is the epitome of privilege. Thank you guys for listening to Absurdity. We'll see you when the break is over. <laughs>